Okay. All right. You were saying something about Zoya. Zoya, I can't remember. Oh, fuck. Sorry. Well, that's fine. It's not your fault. It's the fucking technology's fault. Technology's fault. say really quick right off the top of the show that as you know we've been recording uh remotely i live now in maine and hillary is still in chicago so and i know we keep apologizing for the audio quality of the show but this time i had to do <clears throat> part of the reason it's a little bit late too is I had to do a lot of like editing because for whatever weird technological reason uh my track for the first hour of this very long episode did not record at the right level. So if it sounds like I'm in a fishbowl or our voices are unequal, um, just bear with us. Hopefully we can correct this for next time, but there's uh, not much I can do about it this time around. So thank you for your patience. Thank you for listening and um, enjoy the show. Okay. Hello. Oh, hello. We're on. We're marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary, and it's Matt. And it's Hillary. That's me. And it's our Kim Stanley Robinson podcast where we read and talk about the novels of Kim Stanley Robinson. And uh, uh, yeah, and science fiction and utopianism and um, you know politics. Politics. You know the deal. Um, <laughs> Bernie Sanders is still alive, and we're all pulling for him. <laughs> oh, thank God. Oh, my God. Did I, I did I tell you that this is a great way to begin a podcast? Did I tell you that yeah. I had a dream about Bernie Sanders in which he held my hand? Oh. <laughs> was that the whole dream? Just this kind of... Yeah. I was at a Bernie rally, and he was, like, going around and shaking people's hands, you know, like, mm-hmm. in the way that it seems like politicians do at rallies and when he got to me he just like held my hand for a while and like nodded at me in this really like encouraging way was this do you can you huh oh well i so when i woke up i didn't remember the dream i remembered it like a couple of hours later and then i was like oh my god (laughs) there was some was this do you know if can you back can you back trace this can you tell if this was at the exact same time he was undergoing his heart procedure and his spirit has that had actually left his body and inhabited your soul oh my god right well no it was actually like a day before and then when i heard okay. that he had the heart attack i Whoa. was like did i kill bernie sanders by training? <laughs> <laughs> well a bunch a lot of people are having this reaction like nathan robinson on current affairs just wrote a a really nice piece about why like it has to be Bernie. We have to work even harder now. And um, he, he, he starts part of early on. He's like, you know, I'm not, a, I don't approve of personality cults at all, but at the same time, <laughs> when I found out Bernie was ill, I like had a mental breakdown <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> and then somebody, I know somebody tweeted 
it was, you know, some, one of the haters or something, or one of the, you know, mildly centrist people is like cracking up about the fact that um, Bernie Sanders supporters are all against identity cults. And yet it's one big identity cult. But in our case, in the case of Bernie Sanders supporters, it's a, you know, a proper and good identity cult because yeah. he's the only one. <laughs> he's the only one. I mean, it, it, you know, it is like the only, uh, uh, you know, I am ambivalent about like being as a, as a leftist, as somebody who identifies as a socialist being involved in electoral politics. And we don't right. need to talk about that. That's like a really complicated yeah. question, you know, but I, I do, I do have this feeling right now of like, you know, it's just, it's interesting when you notice that you have um that you have produced like in spite of yourself you've produced like an optimistic attachment you know mm -hmm. um, partly because like i have found myself as i've been thinking like well what if bernie dies but also more often like basically i think the fix is in and there's no way bernie yeah. is the democratic nominee right like, and then that produces this sense of like all hope is lost, which of course does not fit with what I, you know, consciously think, which is that like in some ways electoral politics can be a distraction, you know, from right. like other forms of organizing that are probably more urgent and probably more effective. But, you know, like, so that attachment is both like, you know, it's a problem, right? The attachment to Bernie. But it also like does, you know, it it has like this vivifying, this like life giving quality, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which I think is not is not all about. I don't think it is solely about personality. It's about the that there's a a person who people recognize and like and is famous who's like standing up there and saying like, you know, we need a class war. Yeah, yeah, that's the coolest thing. He's like literally talking about class war now. Like he's just using the term. But it's also a case that, like, you know, you can't choose the conditions in which you make revolution or whatever. And these are the conditions yeah. that we're left with. And it just so happens to be the case that he's the last, like, leftist standing. Yeah. <laughs> um, or, and the only one who's, you know, old enough to run for president and the one who has the longest and most visible record and um, who has accrued the most amount of political experience. Um in like American history, frankly, I mean, like no one has ever served. He's been serving for 40 years in government in one way or another. So like no one else has that record. If you look at like in, in terms of like what his politics are, even though he, you know, he could, you know, there's a, there's a huge range of the political spectrum that's much farther left than Bernie, but at least in right. the American context, you know, it's as good as you can really, um, as, as has been, possible unless you're like thinking of like bob lawful bob la follette or whatever in um milwaukee or wisconsin right, or right. whatever like the 20s and 30s but um mm. so yeah we can be excused for like <laughs> uh panicking when uh when our when our bernie uh <laughs> bernie <laughs> when our bernie goes down um yeah 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 really hope that he's gonna be okay um really don't like a lot of the narratives that are like already being shaped, you know, it's pretty remarkable. Actually, this should be the last thing we say about this. Cause sure. Not all of our fans are huge Bernie Sanders supporters as big as OER, but well, but they should pretty, be, they should be the, the crazy thing is like 
how much the news media completely ignores him until he gets sick. And then yeah. they're like, he should drop out. Oh, he's too old. And, yeah, exactly. He's too old. And now everyone's talking about how he's too old. But meanwhile, they, he gets no coverage in the mainstream press at all. Yeah. He gets like comically skipped over by CNN when they throw up a poll and his name is there and they don't even say his name. It's like ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but oh, as yeah. soon as like, as soon as there's like some kind of like chink in the armor or something, they're like, look, he's done. He's, it's over. Ridiculous. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, the sort of in, uh, I mean, we've probably talked about this before in, um, I'm not a big Chomsky fan, but in yeah. Manufacturing Consent, he talks about the idea that like, you know, this is whatever, when is that book from like a while ago? Yeah. yeah, but he talks about the idea that like anti-communism is one of the sort of like filters through which like media uh, has to go, right? Mm -hmm. And like, you know, I remember teaching that book when I first started teaching college in the like mid 90s, like teaching a couple of chapters from manufacturing consent uh, to some really bored undergraduates. And I remember thinking like, oh, this anti-communism thing, that's probably really like not a thing anymore, you know, not mm -hmm. in the same way that the way that Chomsky is talking about it. Or it felt like, if not residual, at least like slightly dated, but like mm -hmm. the way that the Bernie Sanders coverage works, like, uh, you know, and particularly the way in which like Elizabeth Warren is represented versus Bernie Sanders non-representation mm -hmm. says to me that like, oh yeah, you know, like anti-communism, anti-social, you know, like the critique of the critique of capital or the structural critique, right? Um, that mm -hmm. does, that is the thing yeah. that like, you know, the sort of like, um, Whatever that is, the thing that there is like a consensus around that you know yeah. the thing that can't be shown or named or given time that has to really actively be pushed to the margins or be represented as like a crazy position, a non-realistic position, right? You know. Yeah, that, I mean that to me. I was watching. I think it was two a couple weeks ago. They somebody was. I think it was like Jim Cramer on like CNBC or something was panicking about Elizabeth Warren's plans. And they were actually talking about it. And meanwhile, they still do not talk about Bernie's plans, which to me see, tells me all I need to know. Like they're willing to at least talk about Elizabeth Warren because she is looking to reform capitalism. She still claims to be a capitalist. She's she going to tax lobbyists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She can. She believes it can be reformed and function fairly somehow. Whereas. Um, Bernie simply calling himself a socialist and having more radical plans and talking about a class war is something that you cannot even just say on, on in corporate media yeah. um, at all. And it just, yeah, seems obvious that um, that is a, if not a conscious decision, again, that's another Chomsky thing is like, they don't need to be making conscious decisions. Right. It's, right. If, exactly. If they weren't, if they weren't, uh, if they didn't believe this, they wouldn't have the job that they have. Um, so good stuff. Um, anyway, we're all probably also, I think if he gets the nomination, he's just going to be poisoned by the CIA anyway. So <laughs> I know this is like the season to just like embrace conspiracy theories, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. can I just say on another note, I had a sure. conversation in, um, office hours yesterday with one of my students. I think I'm going to be advising her thesis um, you know, and she was talking to me about what she wants to do next. And she was saying like, I mean, maybe I would want a PhD someday, but I definitely know that I'm not, I'm not going to want to do that for a while. 
And I said the way that I often say to like, you know, these bright young people who I talk to in office hours, I was like, yeah, I mean, you've got plenty of time. And she looked at me and she was like, well, global warming. I don't think I do. (laughs) Holy shit. I said, yeah, you're right. And then I just thought like, what do I mean when I'm saying to her, you have plenty of time? I guess I just mean like, you'll still be young and vital when the world goes to shit. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fuck. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Life is long and, uh, you know, it sucks. Um, (laughs) But what doesn't suck is The Martians by Kim Stanley Robinson. That's right. A collection of um, short stories and fragments that um, are kind of like the apocrypha of the Mars trilogy. And we are starting today with um, Jackie on Zoe. This is like, what is this, uh, number 15? We're going to go through from Jackie on Zoe through Odessa. These are pretty, all pretty short um, snippets. Um, with and and what's been interesting so far is finding kind of common. It, even though the our our groupings have been rather random, we're able to find these sort of common themes and draw them out in in weird ways. And also, like the whole as we go through the whole collection, we're finding that the collection hangs together in really 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 interesting ways that um, you know really supplement and more than supplement, just, you know, add to and provide a whole different dimension to the Mars trilogy. Yeah. I, on that note, I, there was a, a, a particularly sharp reader made a point to me that I completely had not noticed. This is to go back a little bit, but it just thinking mm-hmm. like one of the things that we've talked a bunch about is that like, not only do the, like the stories and the pieces in this book have really interesting relations to each other, um Mm -hmm. and interesting kind of like dialectical movements um but but their relationship to the main trilogy is like really fascinating so somebody pointed out to me that in the um the michelle and provence story that we talked about like whatever a couple weeks ago um you know at the end of that story he moves to like he gets his uncle's big old house that's like right on the beach um and we have the image, it ends with him thinking about wanting Maya to come live with him there. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And like that beach, is, the beach is narrow and he's like not very many meters. The house is very, we're told how many meters the house above is above sea level. Mm-hmm. And I kind of vaguely thought when we were talking about it, I don't think we talked about this, but I sort of vaguely thought like, oh, you know, beach, sea level, sea level rise. Um, uh, but I didn't really think much about it. And somebody pointed out to me that the dating in that story puts the sort of action of that story and him getting the house at like just about the same time as we learn toward the end of green Mars, that the massive sea level rise occurs on earth. Mm -hmm. So I think there's, so, and that, I mean, what I felt like about that was like, well, wow, that really casts that story in a different light, you know? Yeah. Um, But the other thing I was thinking about it is like, well, that's an idea that clearly this just feels like, okay, that, well, this is something we should obviously be thinking about, which is that, so the sequence of stories in here in which, um, you know, they don't go to Mars or we don't, mm-hmm. you know, and thus the events of the, the trilogy don't happen, like um, paying attention to that idea that like, you know, we're seeing Michelle right before sea levels rise, but some parts of that history are 
going to go on, right? Are continuous. So like Mm -hmm. we have a kind of, and that just feels like that's so much like the kind of question that we talked a lot about with the Mars books, which is like, well, what are the things that make a difference? Like, you know, um, what are like human historical actions that make a difference? What's the relationship of human historical actions to like, um, to like geological history, right? Mm-hmm. Which obviously has a great deal to do with human history in that like, you know, we're causing like transformations in geological history. But that idea mm-hmm. that like, um, what's the story in which they don't go to Mars, but the seas rise anyway, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, I was just like very struck by that as like, a, wow, like that is like kind of, um, uh, that's a that's a really like radical way to step back from the kind of um uh it's a radical way to step back from the the feeling of like hope that i think that the mars trilogy gives you you know right yeah well i also wonder too because in when when we get to the section on um an argument for the deployment the surfing one basically argument for the deployment of all terraforming technologies it may, you know, it makes me think back to the, epi- the the discovering life episode where they discovered life, so now they're definitely not going to go to Mars, and they say, "Well, we're just going to have to terraform Earth instead." And um, it makes me wonder, too, like basically about if anything happened between the conclusion of his writing and publishing Blue Mars and. The, the writing and publication of these short stories as the Martians, but also the, the specific ones we're talking about to know if, you know, the science in his eyes of climate change became even more urgent than, um, or like displaced uh, even more the kind of political crisis of the early nineties in the fall of, you know, the, the, the international left um, with the fall of the Soviet Union. If, if there are something there that kind of, you know, or, or if that's just like the natural sort of progression of like, okay, if there's no global left anymore, we still have climate change to deal with. And so, so that's going to be, you know, that'll have to be um, the main focus. Um, and how can we make that happen in a, in a world without a kind of, you know, communist boogeyman or something. Um, but also right. it's, you know, um, right before like, what, I mean, 90, this is published in 99. So it's, it's as the kind of major global movements are really getting started, um, that all got fizzled out with nine eleven. So I don't know. Right. Yeah, Do, I mean, am I making sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that you, you definitely are. And I think that the, um, I was just thinking about how, you know, when we were talking about, I mean, this takes us back to thinking about um, the conversation we had about the the selections from the Mars Constitution and then Charlotte Dorsa Brevia's notes on the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, the the way in which, like, um, I think I think this came out in our conversation last time, but that part of what's happening there. Um, with with the environmental court right um uh is a sort of reframing of what we understand the like of what we understand like the scope of the political to be something like that i mean it's kind of connected to like thinking about like do you care about electoral politics or not right right? you know um and as long as like the political 
is something that can be kind of wall walled off, right? Um, you know, it can be right. seen as like the the domain of elections and uh, you know representative government or whatever it is, um, and not um, and not actually about the kind of like much weirder and more difficult like um, large scale. Uh, processes that we engage in to attempt to have a future that we can like share. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that that's, it's just really interesting to think about that. And that's one of the things that I think is really cool in the Martians is like, not only do the, the stories and the pieces move between these different um, kind of uh, between like different generic modes, you know, like, we get um and different temporalities and different sort of like historical timelines um but they really like even even if in the um in the mars books you get a lot of attention to sort of point of view to the standpoint to the focalizing character to the position that that person has in relation to the whole scope of things um here you just have like uh, and even, you know, a much bigger kind of diversity of standpoints, like even within stories, right. like a right. real diversity of standpoints, as well as of moods, you know, like, you know, right. Arthur Sternbeck brings the, brings a curveball to Mars, right? Um, or like the, the big man story in this section, you know, from like, um, you know, stories that are just like, uh, like, have a ton of like humor in them and, and that kind mm -hmm. of energy to like these very serious moments and these kind of reflective moments, something about that diversity, like really does this kind of, um, uh, and, and the shortness of so many of the stories keeps you as a reader really shifting around from standpoint to standpoint, you know, and yeah. I may be saying this because I was teaching Hegel this week, which is of course all about <laughs> saying like, you have to, figure out like what point of view are you in at what moment because right you know um uh and that feels like that's one of the things that this collection does is like it keeps moving you into these other points of view yeah. and you're trying to put them together into some kind of coherence in your head and like it's both important to do that and also you get things wrong when you do that too yeah well and especially in these first two um episodes here where we 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 inhabit, we, we see the world through two different, well, first through Jackie's eyes, who we've never um, seen Mars through before. And then through Nergal, but Nergal um, really um, meeting two people who we've never met before, who um, are, are who we would, who we would consider to be enemies based on the, yes, yes. Uh, on the first two who are aligned with um, Phyllis. Um, so that's really, it's really interesting uh, to to see um, it, the world through these first two, um, these two, these first two episodes. Um, the first one what is you, Jackie on, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, what did you think of Jackie on Zoe? I thought it was really interesting. I mean, so it, it, it gives us a completely different perspective than we've had before on a character that we have a very fraught relationship with, on two characters that we have a very fraught yeah, relationship yeah, right. with. So like Jackie for me from the trilogy has never been really, I've never really found, I don't think I've really ever found her to be a real enemy. I think I've 
thought of her more of as, and maybe I've said this on the podcast before and I've forgotten and I'm like revising my memories or something, but I never really took her to be, I took her to be kind of um, misguided and um, full of herself, but not like malicious, I don't think. Mm. She wasn't ever really an enemy to me. She was more like a mystery and an enigma, I think. Um, because mostly we see her through the eyes of Nergal, um, who is, you know, blindly in love with her um, and very confused by her um, because she's also his sister in some in weird, weird way, right? Um, and also through the eyes of Maya and Sax and Anne, right? And they all have their different understand. Well, no, I, now I'm thinking of Zoe. Now I'm getting confused with Zoe. Um, Mostly through Maya's eyes, we see Jackie as a as a rival, and Maya herself has so much, you know, inner conflict, and um, you know, sees the world in such particular ways that we can't really, you know, rely on Maya's vision of Jackie either. But to see the world through Jackie's eyes, and not just the world, but her daughter Zoe, who we have a really conflicted. In my view, I had a really conflicted relationship with Zoe that was definitely softened by our reading of that episode um, the, the second time through that I that I read it and through hearing kind of, I think, Stan talk a little bit about Zoe. Um, it gives us a really completely different perspective, this perspective of a mother on a daughter um, and um, and a, and not only a mother on a daughter, but like a Martian mother <laughs> a Martian single mother on a daughter and a Martian mm -hmm. single mother. Who's also like the princess of Mars for lack yeah. of a better <laughs> word. Right. Or at least fashions herself that way. Um, I I'll say one more thing before I shut up, but at the very, at the end of the very first um, paragraph, I really like this uh, sentence to insist on a national natural childbirth on Mars is a kind of machismo. I'm not interested in. Right. Um, and that seems to me to, you know, fit in with that kind of new Martian subjectivity that we've been talking about and kind of seeing unfold as, you know, um, that, you know, to not have an epidural seems just silly um, to certain people. And, and, and to characterize it as a machismo is, um, is really interesting, right, uh, as a kind of play on gender and sort of performativity and um, that kind of thing. So that's my first initial sort of reactions. Yeah. I mean, I think this is such a, um, I mean, so first of all, I think uh, the idea that, you know, in the middle of a collection of SF stories that take science very seriously um, that you would have a story that is really just a sort of short uh, narration of a woman and her memories of and response to uh, her daughter when her daughter was like a tiny little thing and then a little mm -hmm. bit about her relationship with her daughter as, as an adult woman. Like, you know, just the presence of a story of that kind is, like, disruptive in a really interesting way. Um, mm -hmm. And reading this definitely made me think of, like, how um, 
how much I liked the um, the pregnancy story in Red Moon. Um, Ooh, yeah, I, right. I've, and and you know, like the sort of the seriousness with which that took um, uh, uh, what a complicated thing it is to be a pregnant person. You know, um, uh-huh. so I think I I really like that part, and I I thought this is like a fascinating. I mean, I feel like the sort of you know, just on a kind of, so I, you know, I think my feeling about Jackie from the books is like, she's not likable. Um, Uh she's manipulative and she's like personally manipulative. And then her politics basically seem to grow out of that sort of personal relationship, which is that like, she likes power and she, and her relation and her relations to others are formed through the ways in which she thinks about getting and maintaining power. And then that also becomes her model of politics. And that's like how she is. That's how she's the leader of her party too. And then she attains like a great deal of power. And that's where what might be on the personal level, annoying or frustrating or disappointing um, becomes more troubling is when that, that version of what power is and what politics is for gets enacted, you know, when, (laughs) which is like a kind of like, um, you know, it's a funny, like, sort of like riff on the idea that the personal is the political, right? (laughs) Uh Right. Um, Yeah. But I was thinking like, well, so one thing that you might think going into this story, if you carry with you that version of what Jackie is, and now we're going to hear about her, um, giving birth to Zoe, um, Mm-hmm. Is it like, you know, what, well, what's going to be the story about like parent and child? Well, that's always going to be the story that like, we get the human side. I have quotation marks mm-hmm. around human there. Right. You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. going to humanize her. Um, right. Yeah. And I thought what's fascinating about this story is like, it does, it brings us close to Jackie in a way that I don't think we are ever in the trilogy. Um, and right. we get to see her thinking and we see these moments, like when she's looking at little Zoe and seeing this beauty and feeling this like despair over like what is it that we do to children that turns them into adults <laughs> where they don't have access to any of this, you know? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And her frustration over this colicky baby that she sees, you know, and she sees like Zoe's babyhood as just like everything is already there, right? You know, like this is the person mm-hmm. she's always going to be. Like, yeah, maybe like there's something physiological going on for sure, but it's also just like Zoe is this like resistant, difficult, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. little girl and she's still going to be that when she's a woman right, right. And, and i think like we feel a lot of sympathy for like the kind of um you know man yeah like what a job to like live with a kid who like has those kinds of struggles and those kinds of responsiveness to the world who like can't be calmed who cries for 10 hours right um, right. And so all of this, I think, like, generates, like, a sense of sympathy for Jackie, but I was also really interested in her insistence on, um, you know, Zoe is, she, she says, like, Zoe is born, and she was already the thing she's going to grow up yeah. to be. It's all there. About right, her, yeah. Right? And yeah. that idea mm-hmm. that, like, you know, people are, you know, everything is innate, um and you know like set in stone and the images of like that little baby like holding her body so tense as she cries you know like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i thought like that's a really interesting idea it becomes an even more interesting idea when we think about how much jackie herself right is you know she's so much like a person a martian who has embraced like all of the possible ways of like being kind of 
um, you know, like at least quasi post human that are available to her. Yeah. Right? She like takes the like longevity treatment, super young. You know, when right. we see her in the books, she's like always uncannily young looking. Um, yeah. Right. Right. She's ready to take off for you know parts unknown. That's the last time we see her. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so it's funny that like the person who for whom like you know who seem and and you know as you said at the beginning she's like you know why not have the epidural like you know that idea right. about what's natural is is seems foolish to me right and it does seem to me that there's a kind of clash between someone who is committed to like self-fashioning in the way that she seems to be and someone who also wants to say like everything's in you from the moment that you're born right it's it, there's so many contradictions because so you know she says why not have the epidural but in that case why not not carry a child in your womb right yeah. like Jackie herself was born in a weird you know crash or test tube whatever it was I can't remember what they had a name for it um in a it's tank, not a crash an, ect- an ectogenesis tank an ecto tank right she was a she was an ecto baby and um so, and, and also, you know, she, her feeling that, you know, I, d- I doubt not that we're conscious in the womb for at least the last part of the confinement, lost in thought without language, like music or meditation. And so we come out with our character already in place, intact and complete. Nothing afterward changes it. And in fact, she was pissed off like that for, for years to come. <laughs> um, uh, and it seems to me, so like this reminds, like, in our interview with Stan, he said that it was that he thought it was nature and not nurture. Yeah. Like you are who you are, and yeah. it's going to be that way. And I feel like that was surprised. I was surprised when he said that. But then thinking about the kind of almost quasi theory of the of human development that um, Jackie at least applies to, to Zoe, it makes it a little bit more sense in a certain way. Because Zoe in the womb, if she believes that Zoe is conscious in her belly, then she's also sort of, you know, absorbing and reacting to maybe not the words because she's not with, you know, she's without language, but at least the vibe that's going on around Jackie at all times. And Jackie produces a vibe of intense stress and um, competition and uh, just... um, anger around her at all times so maybe like zoe is absorbing this and that's why she comes out all pissed off and colic or something yeah yeah right so it's rather than it being somewhat innate it's just we the learning process starts way sooner than we than we want to to think it does right um yeah i was like really um i was thinking in this regard about on 284 when she's talks about um I mean, there are a lot of moments, a lot of the things that we see of Jackie here that I think are unexpected are her, like, uh, on 284, she says, uh, she was so high maintenance, I was embarrassed to inflict her on daycare. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's the moment where she has another woman says to her, don't hold, Mm -hmm. you shouldn't do that with your baby, you shouldn't bounce her up and down like that. And like, you know, Jackie thinks, I realize that it must be an incredibly hard thing to do to say something like that to somebody else. So we see these moments that I feel like we don't get of the Jackie in the books of being like kind of reflective and embarrassed and not so like self-sure all the time. But it was, well, so yeah, I would just, I would just say like what we see is, is 
it's how we see it more of what happens with Jackie because at first the woman says, don't do, you shouldn't do that. You might hurt her. And then Jackie's defensive. And she says, I got her head supportive. And then it's like, you know, I know what I'm doing. I'm her mother. Don't say anything. And then later she's able to reflect. Yeah, on that. Yeah. So typically what we've seen is like Nergal, you know, her react to Nergal or somebody in some way and hurt their feelings. And then we don't see how Jackie processed it, processes that later. And here we actually do. And, she, you know, changes her parenting, although it does that's not an admission of guilt or anything like that. That just means like she sort of internalizes it and almost makes it her own idea or something like that. Um, I don't know. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted. Oh, no, 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 not no. I mean, and I, I, but I think that she, like, we see more of her, um, having consideration for other people here, right? Thinking, right. like, well, they have ideas too, or things are hard for them too. I was also really interested in the, um, so we get also on 284 that little Zoe's terrible to other kids. She'd walk right up to them and knock them down. Uh, mm -hmm. Almost as if experimentally, it was impersonal. She didn't seem malicious, more like deranged. Indeed, later we figured out she had a perceptual problem after her illness and thought she was farther away from things than she really was. Uh, so when she got interested in another person, bam, over they went. Um, like, I, I mean, that both is such a... Um, you know, I feel like there's there are so many things that, like, both children and adult people are condemned for doing, you know, like, right. you know, this makes you weird, this means that you behave badly, you're rude, like, all of those kinds of things right. that are really about, like, just divergences in, like, things like perception or how your brain works, yes. right? Um, yeah. And that kind of, like, recognition of... Um, that sort of recognition of it, although she still seems to think of her as like this, you know, like this little tyrant <laughs> anyway, mm -hmm. right? Like, so we have yeah. both of the line of thinking like, well, she's like knocking over kids because actually like she's, she's like excited to see them and she can't tell how far away from uh, her they are. And also she's like knocking over kids because she's imperious or something like that. You know, yeah. so like both personality, mm -hmm. like a kind of uh, a version of personality and a version of like, this is your like, you know, um, biologically produced sensorium get like overlaid on each other. Yeah. But I was also thinking like that is a moment, like when we think about Zoe, who we meet um, in the Mars books, like, she's really recharacterized if we think that part of that person is somebody who like um might have like some kind of ongoing like uh perceptual problems from a childhood illness you know mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. like that really changes that sort of like um like brash death-defying pleasure-seeking right. person in some ways and i i thought that yeah. yeah i think there's something really quite interesting and like um like lovely about that and then that also is what makes the story ultimately such a painful story because we know that zoe is dead and we're mm -hmm. hearing this from jackie at a moment before that has happened you know mm -hmm. yeah and that kind of yeah the ending is kind of killer in that way you know yeah like, yeah it, uh, like it upsetting. it is it is and the the you know, two interesting things that happen 
right uh, right at, before the ending are that like you know Zoe grows up enough to like learn language so she can actually say what she wanted and that relaxed her in some ways and she could like talk all of a sudden and finally she can express herself but then the way she starts expressing herself is often like really inappropriate and, um <laughs> Telling Jackie to go away, you're not my friend, I don't like you. Hating and then just pointing <laughs> Yeah, pointing at other people, I don't like that guy. <laughs> and which is also so refreshing to hear. I mean, you know, we all love Nergal, but we love I love to see that um someone didn't like him. <laughs> and 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 from the innocent perspective of, of a child who, you know, if a child doesn't like you, you you know. Donald Trump is a case in point, you know, you, you know, that there's something wrong with that person. You know, I don't like that guy. Um, and then this really, you know, in, in the last paragraph, this kind of poignant, but also very true thing. Um, eventually, I mean, over years, she did get a, a bit more polite. Eventually the world wears you down. You get a veneer of civilization over your real self, right? You just learn how to be in the world and like reconcile your internal personality with your external uh, ex uh, uh, exhibition or something yeah. like that, or performance. Um, and, uh, but, and then, but how I loved her when she was a little animal and you saw just how she, uh, you saw just what she was really like. You know, that there's like some real there prior to language that um, is, is expressed and only sort of tamed and channeled by by language. Um, and and then that, you know, the, the, the end, which is really sad, like you think you're so tough, you should have seen yourself when you were two. That kind of knowledge of a parent of their child of like, I know who you, who you are because I've seen you every minute of your life. So don't try to fool me. Right. Yeah, I mean, that end, I think, would have a, like, you know, the end would feel, like, poignant no matter what, but, like, thinking about this as, like, coming from this moment um, in Jackie's life, in Jackie's life story, where she can still, like, tell this story in which there is, like, mm -hmm. a good outcome, but she still, you know, she gets to, like, you know, like, her recompense for her right. labors are, she gets to have the fantasy that she knows more and that she knows her daughter better than right. her daughter knows herself, Right, Which I guess, right. You know, that's the recompense that you get for like the labor of love, right? Is you yeah, that's have a fantasy yeah. about like having having that kind of power where you know someone better than they know themselves. Which is actually that's a pretty intense thing to think about, like what caring relations are. But yeah. you know, yeah. but then also the tyranny of the tyranny of parenthood. Yeah, the exactly. Parenthood. Or, I mean, and I think like we could probably think that like that version of like what what it is that caring gives you like the satisfaction that you're given in caring labor is about like mm. kind of fantasy of power. I mean, you think about that in all right. kinds of human relations in ways that, yeah. you know, are uh, not romantic say, um, but, <laughs> <For> uh, <sure. laughs> but then also that end is just so sad. I mean, just thinking of like the end of Zoe's yeah. life and mm -hmm. that kind of like, the exuberant her that we see at the end of that takes her to her death versus um, Jackie looking at her and seeing her as supercilious and thinking mm -hmm. like, but I know that that little animal is still there. The real you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Man, it's a good story. You know, it is a really good story. Yeah. I think it's really rich and it's a, such a different perspective too than we've, than we've had. Jackie's just such a, different character than 
Yeah. The other ones. And I gotta say that I really loved the next story, Keeping the Flame, the Nergal story also. Yeah. This one was really interesting because you're, you know, again, like Phyllis is the villain. If, if there's a villain in the, in the Mars trilogy, it's Phyllis. For sure. Even though she gets killed in like the second book or whatever. Um, the second book or the first book? Second. Okay. Um, and now to see that there's a whole, you know, group of people who, you know, regard her as the hero and Nergal and all of his friends and parents and leaders and colleagues and comrades as the villains um, is really unique and, and interesting because, of course, in real life, there aren't villains and heroes. There's just like people fucking up in various ways. And so and like some, even here, villains, we, you know, there's some villains. <laughs> yes, there's a few. But, you know, mostly it's capitalism. And, yeah. You know, we have to abolish I'll, capitalism. I'll put I'll put a bunch of billionaires into the uh, there are also villains category too. They're you know they're 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 villains. They're yeah they're 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 uh, seduced by the dark side. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that stuff. Um, but in any event, these two guys uh, don't really seem like villains. They're just old bald men yeah. Um, yeah. who like to um, you know uh, wax nostalgic about. Um, Phyllis, when um, Nergal comes by, um, he stumbles upon this kind of um, temple or something, right? Um, uh, it's a, yeah, it's a temple. Yeah, it's a temple. Uh, the stone of the temple was alabaster, very white. It reminded him of the white stone village in Medusa Fossa. Uh, it looked Greek, um, and he has this real fairy tale experience. Yes, yeah. Um, it's very much like, you know, I mean, he, they, it says fairy tale every, you know, repeatedly uh, seemed to him like a fairy tale from another age, a title, a tale with a child hero and an animal mother. Um, and uh, let's see. I think this, I remember. He, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I remember we were talking about something early, one of the earlier stories Oh, the finding the trails stories uh, story. Right. Um, I can't remember. Or teleological trails. Yeah. Um, such a great, uh, such a great piece. And remember, you were saying that you felt like it. it that's an uncanny story. That idea of the like mm. the trail that's covered over, and like that's not a story that yeah. gives me an uncanny feeling. But this one, because mm -hmm. it's not only yeah, that for Ner sure. Nergal has that thought of like, oh, my childhood was like a fairy tale. And I love that moment that you're just pointing to, like, how do you think about that fairy tale and the rest of your life as having anything to do with each other? Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's partly really good because we've just had this story about, you know, like a parent thinking about their child's babyhood, you know, right? Um, and you know Jackie's perspective is like there's this absolute continuity right and here's Nergal thinking like how is this still the same how am I still am I still living the same life or whatever but I also feel like this story overall like is so you know he finds this you know he finds this crazy like temple construction in the you know um uh you know, a, see, a scene itself that is like a little bit uncanny. He thinks about fairy tales. Mm -hmm. He finds these two, you know, he encounters these two old men and the right. old men are like, you know, they're like, um, 
they're part of the first 100, but we've never heard of them, or maybe we've heard of them, but I definitely I don't think remember we, them. I think Edvard is a name I recognize. George is not really. Um, but in any event, they are these old, they're almost like trolls or some kind of mythological being. Yeah, exactly, who take him to their little cabin in the woods. Yeah. Um, I mean, his heart leaped in him like a child trying to escape as he, when he sees the two old people. And then they, they look at him suspiciously. They know who he is, right? Yes. Which everyone knows who he is, but they, you know, they know who he is. And he doesn't know who they are. And then, so that immediately makes you, you know, freaks you out. Right, exactly. They hiked through the woods covering the old crater wall to the edge of the crater where stood a little cottage constructed of logs roofed by dark red slates. The men led Nergal into this home of theirs, Nergal ducking under the lintel. It was dim inside. You can see the monument through the treetops. They served Nergal an odd herb tea made from a kind of pond weed. Yeah. Like... <laughs> Sure, drink this, stranger. <laughs> exactly. And then they're like, hey, we're going to say some things about the entire past history that has mattered to you, both, you know, both as history and as, like, you know, personal story. And we're going to say, like, completely opposite things. Right. That also right. suggests that we are, like, you know, slightly ominous people in our allegiances, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it all could have been avoided if they had listened to Phyllis. It was all Arcady's fault. Bogdanovitz, Bog, Bogdanov, Bogdanov, Bogdanov's stupid confidence. Whereas Phyllis had a plan. Oh, just like Elizabeth Warren. Uh, that is uh, exactly what I thought. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. I was kidding. I was kidding, guys. I'll vote for Elizabeth Warren. Um <laughs> Whereas Phyllis had a plan that would have worked fine without all the destruction and death, without the war. Um, she saved us all when we were marooned on Clark and saving everyone on Mars after saving everyone on Mars before that. Mm -hmm. um, so they have this really, you know, completely opposite un uh, understanding of history that <clears throat> Nergal does. Um, right, that includes them wanting... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you were gonna. You're gonna say what I was gonna say. Go ahead. Oh well, it includes them wanting to like give Phyllis the same like status as Hiroko. Maybe she's not yeah. really dead, right? Yeah, yeah, that she's a mythological being, and that also though that you know what they were able to do um, after '61 was strip mine the planet. Yeah, <laughs> and that was you know this great undertaking. Those were the glory years, a moment in history when the tremendous power of technology could be wielded on the landscape without consequences, no environmental impact statements, no scars that would last, billions of dollars of metals extract, extracted before the ice overwhelmed the sites. That was when we found this place. Amazonia was full of metals. No, we, no way we got it all out. You know, they're still like pining over the fact that there must still be metal under the, under the oceans that we, that they could like still extract and make money off of or, you know, put to use, essentially put to use would be the key thing. Um, yeah. that Which is also interesting, right? Like it, it does go with, I think, is it the, you know, the, the not, maybe not saving Noctis Dam, but um, the next one uh, or the, the one, the argument or um, 
Yeah, actually, there's a notion in the argument for the deployment of uh, terraforming technology that speaks to this in a certain way where it's like, well, you know, technology, we're going to have to use technology to get out of the mess that technology has yeah. put us into. Right. And that, in fact, you know, extracting those metals, um, however, like, horrific it was, has made possible the world we now live in anyway. So, you know, wh what is the right answer to this? And there is another side to this than, you know, that that has its own sort of sense of logic and ethics and morality, too, that's really, you know, hinted at here in a way. Yeah, and, and getting that sort of, like, um, you know, there's something about, like, uh, having this kind of, like, revisionist story, revisionist history told in this fairy tale setting uh yeah it's like uh i don't know it makes it like it, it would be very different if he had met these two you know in a city or a town or even like out on a you know out on a yeah. trail as he's running you know but they're in the right house, right right um yeah and did you what did you think about the like uh um after he falls asleep and then the dialogue that he hears, is that dream or is that actually them talking? I think that's actually them talking. I mean, that part is very uncanny because as he falls asleep, you really have to ask whether he's been, you know, drugged or not. Um, he doesn't seem to suspect that he's being been drugged, that he's just falling asleep because he's tired. Um, but the but the fact that they talk while he's asleep makes it more eerie and creepy. Yeah. And then the dialogue really hints at something that I don't know if we're going to, if it's going to be cashed out in the remainder of the, of the, you know, stories that we're going to see um, in that there's some kind of either plot or, you know, um, inevitable catastrophe, like ecological catastrophe that they know about that no one else yeah. does, right? Um, we should tell him, no, why not? There's no need. Everyone will find out soon enough. When things start dying, Phyllis wouldn't have wanted that. You know, so is it that they have, is it that they have a set of knowledge or like some kind of, you know, thanatopic epistemology <laughs> that basically says, oh, you know, all the terraforming is actually going to not going to last. It's all going to collapse and it's going to collapse spectacularly and everyone's going to die or like mass you know, destruction is going to happen because of these, you know, scientific, you know, facts, or is there some other like, you know, <laughs> deep state, um, yeah, right. <laughs> some kind of like UMTA plot that, you know, Phyllis, sort of set in motion or had a, had a, you know, contingency plan for undoing the revolution or whatever that, um, is, you know, one day is going to, is, is in the planning or something like that. Um, it, it's confusing. I don't know what to make of it. Yeah. I, I'm not sure either. I mean, and like, you know, it could be, I mean, since, uh, I think that there's also, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I was also going to say, there's also the, the word they is doing a lot of work yeah, here yes. and it's, it's very confusing 
at any given moment who they is because on the one hand, oftentimes they is the Reds or the revolutionaries or the Martians or whatever. But then in other way, in other moments, you could think of that because these two guys, Edvard and George, are so separated from everybody else. Are is they another faction? You know that that is still operative um, uh, of Phyllis's sort of um, you know group or of the the UNTA or the earth or whatever. Um, is that, is that who they is, or is they always just, you know, the revolutionaries, um, the Saxon, Maya and Anne group. Right. Uh, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, and so we don't, I mean, I think that we really aren't very sure. I mean, this could be something that's, and since there's no quotation marks around the dialogue, like it's presumably mm-hmm. coming to Nergal, um, in his sleep or in something like a sleep state. So we don't know whether this is like a transcript of something that they're actually saying or just like what Nergal's sleepy brain is making happen. Um, But in the, in the setting, in this kind of like, you know, witch's hut with the like, you know, pondweed tea, like the idea that we would learn something um, disturbing uh, and, right. and, you know, this has a like slightly like apocalyptic disturbing sound to it. Like that feels sure. quite yeah. fitting with the setting. And then mm-hmm. the kind of, um, so then I, I think it's interesting that one of the things that seems to be being thought about here is like what happens to the way that you think about, um, you know, not only your own life, but about history and the history that you have like lived through when you elevate a single person to the kind of status that you would want to like build a temple for them. Right. So like, right, yeah, you know, right. what, what is that sort of status that they've given Phyllis? Like, um, is, is that the same as the kind of like status that Hiroko has? I mean, it doesn't seem exactly right because I don't think that people, people long to find Hiroko, but they don't worship her you know yeah but you know i don't know like maybe there is like an uncomfortable like similarity there but you know what what does it mean to like elevate someone like that you know to want them to be memorialized but to also think of them as like the savior right i think that there's two but it's also like the case that you know the comparison between phyllis and hiroko is i think really important and generative and especially in in the comparison between what people who believe they're still alive or still could be alive do to memorialize that. And I mean, we don't, you know, just in terms of the texts that we have, we have this memorial to Phyllis that these two old men are keeping the flame about and sort of telling the story over and over again, right? That that it it has been a, um, it's a well-rehearsed story that they have sort of, mythologize for themselves with with Hiroko things don't really we don't see in the novels at least that it work out that way that the way you honor Hiroko is you keep looking for her and moving around and meeting new people right and regenerating you know society and 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 trying to to find her and and the way you find her is you hear that there's somebody in a place doing something extraordinary, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and you go there hoping that maybe that's Hiroko 
and she's out there, you know, creating a new, you know, whatever, a new organism, a new uh, bamboo tree house, whatever. Right, Virididas um, in some form. Yeah, Virididas is like still alive and well, whereas with Phyllis, you know, this um, this cold um, woman who last time we saw her was not, I mean, on one hand, torturing Saxe, but also maybe not torturing Saks because that guy who was embedded as a spy said, no, she wasn't doing right, that. Spencer, right. We yeah. have those Spencer, but also that she was draped in gold and silver. Yes. Right. Um, living on a space station. Um, and this kind of person who's just frozen. And of course, you know, it makes sense that in that light, it would make sense that Edvard and George would just create a, a memorial, like a, a pure white, <laughs> Uh, column that would yeah. memorialize her and they would just hide in the woods for for the rest of their lives or something um yeah yeah it's, exactly and I, I it's interesting to have the kind of like um the slipping into like the fairy tale is like um like opening us up to thinking about the place of um uh, of fantasy, including like, you know, sort of like deep seated, like childhood fantasies, yeah. like fantasy mm -hmm. and fear in relation to, um, you know, history, politics, right? I mean, that feels right. like that's part of part of what's happening here is that's not only, it's not only that those things are operative in relation to like, how you imagine your your own life story. They're also operative in relation mm -hmm. to the ways in which you imagine and can retell um, large scale stories, right? History right. and yeah. politics. Yeah. Yeah. This is yeah. also definitely a story that like, you know, it gives me the like, you know, but I, but I would like to know more, please. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I love the, the, the image that it, ends with uh there's still there are still as wax figurines one of them was asleep dreaming the other's dream the other watched it in the air i know um, well that, that's the other thing i guess beautiful. like that it seems to be partly that the story of these men is that like you know we're told that they're partners and i assume by that nergal means right. that they love each other that they're romantic partners you know right. and they've made their refuge and nergal thinks like it would have been hard for them to be i assume yeah. What's meant is that it would have been hard for them to be gay in the context of the first hundred, you know. So here they especially are. under especially under the thrall of Phyllis, who was a Christian fundamentalist. Yeah, right, right, right. And the so the sort of like then that's the other side of this is this little house is also the the little refuge that they've made for themselves you know in a yeah in a yeah. world that both seems you know extraordinarily accommodating but maybe in their version of the world they they don't want it to be accommodating they want the little place outside mm -hmm. the world yeah 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 because they can't reintegrate anyway with um maya and the others the no. other hundred right like there, there's no they're not capable of doing it even if they would be welcomed back you know right and then when they still have some kind of like murderous revenge drive if the dialogue yeah. that nergal hears is indeed what they're saying well yeah i mean i think it's yeah re yeah revenge yeah um 
but the, that's anyway that yeah we could talk because that's where that's where the sh- the they as a shifter becomes really weird yeah yeah we had no choice you know that they would have killed us would they i'm not so sure i think you wanted it they kill phyllis and so we we had no choice come on you they could have gotten the locations from the records and who's to say they aren't they aren't right anyway Revenge. Okay, revenge. Say it was. Serves them right. This was never their plan. It's like David Mamet dialogue. <laughs> I can't figure it out. Okay. Uh, saving Noctis Dam. Um, this is a cool, like, um, pseudo Nadia story about, um, like, basically, uh, you know, uh, trying to save. Uh, New Orleans from a hurricane sort of by hammering up some plywood over the, over the, (laughs) exactly over the, over the levees. Yeah. Um, This is, this is totally a, like, you know, under, I mean, we've talked about this before, like, you know, in like in the Mars trilogy, as in this story, like things are going to hell, things are getting complicated like you've got to do something and people figure out how to work together. They improvise mm-hmm. a solution. It's not a perfect solution, but it does what it needs to do at least temporarily. And like right. that, you know, that the sort of like the energy of like that kind of work, the work done under conditions of utter necessity, like alongside other people mm-hmm. to just like, you know, do, you know, to do what needs to be done. Right. It's also, but it's also hard to place this um, chronologically, like when this would happen in relation to the Mars trilogy, because it says um, when the weather became more violent and we saw the first superstorms, which to me felt like it was alluding to this idea that George and Edvard were just talking about. Everyone will find out soon enough when things start dying, right? Right. That there is some kind of calculation that or prediction that people aren't, that, that isn't, you know, fully, you know, disseminated that something's going to start happening where everything that they've done is going to, um, you know, fight against them. Um, and that in fact, you know, Noctis Dam, first, first of all, it was, you know, it was not a good idea in any case. And then they botched the engineering as well. But then second of all, they, they eventually, at the very end of the story, later, of course, they took it out. I cannot say I regret it. Like, it was a mistake in the first place somehow. Um, uh, but nevertheless, they had to protect it for the moment, even though later on it was going to have to be um, removed. And w- whether it was going to be removed by um, human endeavor or destroyed by a superstorm, it was not going to last, right? Right. Um, which is a compelling thought to think about in terms of climate change and, you know, all the stuff that's going to be underwater in 20 years. And something also about like, I was thinking if that last, you know, right at the end of, right at the end of this story, um, uh, Mary said, by God, Stefan, we did a Nadia on that dam. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. uh, So I was thinking about the way in which that previous story you know, Phyllis, Phyllis is monumentalized, you know, they build this monument to her, this like clean white Greekish monument. Um, uh, mm-hmm. 
you know, but here Nadia is being remembered or invoked, like, uh, not as like something, you know, something frozen, not as an icon, but instead as a sort of like, um, a way of, of saying how you like improvised and figured something out in a moment in which, you know, something really had to be improvised and figured out, you know? Right, right, right. Which is like kind of an awesome, like an anti-monumental way of thinking, right? Yeah, yeah, like an enactment thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I wonder too, because it, because we, you know, in the original trilogy, there's Mary Dunkel, who I just assume this is Mary Dunkel, um, but I don't know if it is or not. But I don't know who Stefan is, right? By God, Stefan, we did a Nadia on that dam. I don't think Stefan is in the first hundred. I don't know if we know who you know who he is. I. I don't think so, but you know I'm bad at names. I looked him up on kimstanleyrobinson.info, and I didn't see, he he wasn't, that name wasn't listed. So I don't know if this is in fact Mary Dunkel. Um, uh, but anyway, that's, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it sort of matters, but also doesn't, because in, in the sense that you're talking about with Nadia, you know, we did a Nadia on that dam as she's, she's entered like the language yeah. of, <laughs> of Mars. So, like, how do you solve a massive problem like all by yourself? Of course, what's interesting is like, I, we, I think you and I regard like thinking, think about Nadia, doing a Nadia is like taking command of all the machines on Mars <laughs> in, on one, from one computer and like redirecting huge rivers rather than like, getting a truck full of plywood and like going out um, <laughs> with a nail gun, but you know, it's just me. Yeah. Well, I think it's about, it's about like solving a problem that has to be solved, right. you know, and figuring right. that yeah. like, right. that's like, you know, that's just something that you're going to have to like leap into and do it. Um, yes. You know, and, and at with certain no moments, say that again. With no debate. With no debate. And at certain moments, the big picture is like not what you're working on. You have to work in the immediate in order to Mm -hmm. make something happen or protect something. Yeah. Tactics versus strategy. And I do think this is a nice, I mean, the, the, um, an argument for the, uh, for the deployment, uh, of, of all safe terraforming technology story doesn't immediately follow this. But I think that mm-hmm. the like the work to put up that plywood barrier at the top of the dam is like interesting to think alongside. I'm sorry, my 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 Milton, my cat Milton is trying to tear a poster off the wall. Cool. <laughs> That's a cool thing to be doing. Um, uh, but I think it's cool. Uh, I think it's interesting to put that sort of like the scene of work in this story alongside the scene of body surfing in that later story. Both of them are like yeah. these like entering into process, um, kind of entering into a different sort of temporality, you know, through focus, through physical movement. Um, I kind of mm-hmm. like the idea that there's a kind of like parallelism between those two. Yeah. Yeah. I think that these, this group is really inter- This group of things that we've decided to read for today is really interesting in terms of like the different connections that, that can be made. Like, so just moving to the next one, Big Man in Love, it happens to include the clone of Zoe, <laughs> um, Zoya, 
um, because and but who has been cloned. So she's the same. She's you know another daughter of Jackie's, granddaughter of Kasai, great granddaughter of John Boone. That wasn't all because Zoe's body had floated for a while in the North Sea. She had been slightly salted <laughs> and thereby became inadvertently related to the resurgent Archaea. And in that salty, fizzing, primeval soup of a sea, it seemed it seems she also picked up traits of kelp and limpet, dolphin and sea otter, and who knows what else. So she was a lot of things, big like Paul Bunyan, wild like Zoe, rebellious like the Archaea, happy like John, and as stormy and tempestuous <laughs> as the northern sea. That was Zoya. Zoya was everything. She swam through icebergs and flew in the jet stream and ran around the world for an afternoon jog. Um, so yeah, obviously this is like a folktale one, but it's a really weird folktale one. And I think uh, our other, uh, I, I don't know if it's the listener you were talking about, but uh, our listener on Twitter, uh, Michael Bentley, I think kind of pointed this, this out that there's this weird collapse of the folklore and the scientific especially in this chunk that we're reading so that Zoe's Zoe is a clone but or Zoya is a clone of Zoe but she also incorporates the Archaea in it mm. so there's a scientific aspect to the to the um uh folk tale but then it, two sections from now the select the selected abstracts from the journal of areological studies we find out that the Archaea are actually real and um you know, they, there was life on Mars, at, uh, and so the the science and the folktale collapse in on each other from the opposite direction as well, um, which is really fun. Yeah, I think that, that that is a really awesome thing to think about. Um, uh, I felt like that comment that Michael made on Twitter was just really smart and interesting in a number of ways, and he also compared um, the Martians to... Ursula Le Guin's novel Always Coming Home, which, have you read that? Right. No. Um, I mean, it's a really, in, in many ways, like a very different book from this, but I thought that that was like, um, you know, it is this kind of, uh, uh, it's also takes place in fragments. There are like poems. There are like things that are like essays. There are like little stories. There's some more extended stories. So like structurally, there is a sort of similarity, although it's not in relation to like a longer work in the way that this is in relation mm -hmm. to the Mars trilogy. Um, mm -hmm. But that book is very much about like um, uh, sort of, uh, I, it, it might be, I think it's kind of right to say that that's a book that's kind of about this um, uh, thinking about um, indigenous knowledge and futurity mm. together. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I, I feel like there's something kind of circling here with like the Archaea and like the kind of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the way, the ways in which we're beginning to think that like, um, okay, there is, li there is life on Mars and that means more than one thing at once. You know, that means like uh -huh. human life and it means these like non-human lives. Um, there's something in here, I think about, um, that at least lets us think a bit about like what it means to be indigenous in a way that is really kind of intriguing. Yeah. Um, and we get mm -hmm. in the uh, the safe terraforming story you know the thing that like prompts them to have to basically 
take off from their meeting and go out and go body surfing is like the sort of frustration over um, this conversation. It keeps using manifest destiny as if that were a metaphor. Um, Mm -hmm. And the, the narrator of that story is really frustrated about like words and what words can't do. And I feel like this is a kind of like of this little arc of stories that we've been reading. This is very much a kind of like theme of them. Like, um, what's the stuff that can't happen in words or what are the ways in which like, you know, figures of speech just kind of freeze in place a particular kind of idea, a particular kind of relation and don't let you get to a different sort of relation or a different sort of idea. Um, And all Mm -hmm. of that seems to be bound up in like both these like super playful, like big man and Zoya, um, but also in the like, the like, you know, like micro level scientific investigations we get in the excerpts from the journal. Yeah. But I'm also thinking that like, so the, the contrary of like the limitations of words is the possibility of words or what words, what only words can do and language and stories. And that's kind of what the point of the folk tales is, is to express some kind of truth or create a, a logical narrative system that explains things that we don't have an explanation for, or that ex- or express some kind of, you know, um, truth about living on Mars. And that as playful and silly as uh, uh, the big man in love um, story is where big man gets a uh, p- penis grown uh, like an impossible burger and um, <laughs> Ew. sews it onto his body uh, smaller than his uh, gigantic big man penis just so that he can have sex with Zoya. Um, seems like, you know, a, a folk tale that you could kind of unpack in terms of you know, what is it, what is necessary for a person to need to live on Mars or to live in the Antarctic or whatever, some kind of fundamental, you know, technological, um, almost like, I mean, you could almost think of it as a technological trauma to, you know, put yourself in a spaceship in a spacesuit, um, and, you know, in a completely unnatural, um, position in order to, you know, achieve the thing that you want to achieve in this case sex with a clone of a dolphin uh woman or something i mean it's like a kelp a kelp a kelp lady lady. uh the uh so you know like it is a um it's like an inversion of so you know where where is like the you know what's the origin point of the story well the origin point of the story could be there's this weird natural feature on Mars that people like to climb that looks like a giant peanut. Right. Where did that come from? Well, it's big right. penis. Well, why would right. he, why would he have gotten rid of his, you know, but then, right. but then what makes it like, um, uh, different from the, I, I think big man fights Paul Bunyan or whatever has happened in like previous versions of these is that, mm-hmm. you know, Zoya is not Zoe, but in some ways she is Zoe, and she's right. not a figure from a folktale, although she also is a figure from a folktale, you know, a mermaid, uh, she's a mermaid, right? She's a, like, selkie, she's something like that, right? Um, but mm-hmm. she's also, like, a made thing, but then she's made not mm-hmm. only by, like, what are, by cloning, who, whoever may have cloned Zoe, right? She's also made by the Archaea that have like made their way into her through the salty water and then the kelp and the sea otters and yada, yada, yada. Right. right? 
So they're, you know, then she's, and then in the context of this movement of stories, she's also like this, like, um, you know, weird double of like little Zoe, everything was innate in her from the time, from the very moment that she was born, you know, she was born pissed off. Right. right? Um, and she's like, she's clearly like Zoe in some ways too, like wandering the world, thrill seeking, you know, like wanting to have sex with strangers, right. Et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then Stop she doesn't like her. The, the, the distortion is starting up again. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's time for a distortion break. Okay. All right, you were saying something about Zoya. Zoya, I can't remember. Oh, fuck. Sorry. Well, that's fine. It's not your fault. It's the fucking technology's fault. Technology's fault. Um, well, she is Zoya and she's not, she's Zoe and she's not Zoe. She's got like Zoe's characteristics, but also the characteristics of the sea creatures. Um, I think you were basically getting at a sense of like how a folktale sort of develops out of sort of the material that's laying around for people who, for the people who tell it and what they want to explain and, um, you know, you know, I don't know what they, why they exist in the material they're made out of. Right. And, and it, I think here the, you know, the, the story about like, um, like, uh, big man loses his penis and it's, it becomes something that you can climb on Mars. Like that, that story could exist on its own. I mean, that story could happen in right. a lot of ways. Right. But like the level of detail about Zoya and that she makes her way from, let's say like the, um, you know, quote unquote, realistic part of the story, the part that seems to be about like people who actually exist, you know, in a fictional historical world she makes her uh-huh. way from that uh, in the form of she's a clone of Zoe of Zoe into like the folktale, right? So she's like slid, so she's like slid across yes. the, across a barrier, right? So this is another variant of that. Like the archaea are also showing up in the scientific, right? In the scientific stud, in the scientific papers, right? Um, right. But Zoe, um, you know. Zoe has slid from like um, someone who died in the course of the Mars trilogy into a clone of herself into the folktale realm rather than like the everyday realm. Yeah. Which is, it would be interesting then if we, I mean, if this would be a place where we could like think about, I mean, I don't know. I don't have a thought here, but it would be a place where we could think about how um, it, it like adds a, uh, uh, it adds something to the way in which this collection of stories do all of this like generic shift from genre to genre, right? Make these like different are exist in different kinds of generic modes. Mm -hmm. Um, But here we're getting like the kind of um, like a sort of like mixing of love, a mixing of levels and a mixing together of those modes, right? In a way that, um, uh, yeah, so there's so there's something quite complicated then in how you would think about a story like this as relating to the Mars trilogy, or even as relating to the Little Red Men and the Big Man um, yeah. folktale sections. One well, and going back to the end of the of saving Noctis Dam, you know, we did a Nadia on that dam. Like Nadia has entered the language as a kind of shorthand. Sorry, that, <laughs> that sound was my phone ringing. <laughs> yeah. Nadia has entered. 
like they're just doing a Nadia is part of like the language of, you know, as you said before, uh, like a, achieving an, a, a major feat really quickly uh, at the, you know, whatever. And so there is this, uh, that, that again is kind of a slippage um, yeah, yes. from sort of historical fact to, um, to something that's, you know, in that's, that's, that that's in language, essentially, that's just sort of ideological that's taken for granted as something that means something, um, which then the next section an argument for the deployment of all safe terraforming technologies undoes yet again, sort of almost dialectically, right? Like the frustration that launches the narrator and, and Irishka and uh, their other friend to go surfing is this frustration around not being able to express the importance of, of deploying safe terraforming technologies. These were people who did not understand the power of language. They speak casually about manifest destiny. Um, uh, Other people like Arishka were extremely put off by it, all because of words. I sat through the whole of that session of the Global Environmental Court, listening to the arguments pro and con. And though my work is in words, I thought to myself, this is absurd. This is horrible. Language is nothing but a huge set of false analogies. There has to be a better way to make one's point. so that there's this really interesting slippage between, you know, something being so taken for granted and understood um, as an obviousness that it enters language as just mm-hmm. doing a Nadia mm-hmm. or that, you know, Zoe represents these things. So she enters into folktale as this new figure called Zoya. Um, and then on the other side of that is that people don't know how to use language properly in order to make the argument that, you know, massive things have to be done, you know, in the context of the story to do terraforming to Mars and in the context of the world that we live in, do terraforming to Earth to prevent global warming, right? right? Like language is just fundamentally failing us at this at this moment, at least as far as uh, representing political will because to the people, the, you know, people who hold power, essentially. I mean, yeah. So I, yeah, I think that's really like that, uh, that feels like very insightful to me as a way of thinking, not only about how these stories are related, but what's happening in this moment. And one of the things seems to be like, so sitting there, like in this meeting, like, well, part of what's happening for, um, Arishka and Freya and the narrator who, do we know the narrator's name? I don't think so. I don't think we do. No. Um, but part of what's happening for them is is this very specific frustration is that they're listening to people. I th- oh, sorry, go ahead. I think the narrator is Stan. You, you can look Stan. I think, I think it's literally Stan Robinson. <laughs> I mean, uh, he you know, he, his business is words, I guess. Right. <laughs> it is. And I think he probably just went surfing after being at some horrible meeting. And I, well um, then, you know. I mean, then we're really sliding around in terms of like, how yeah, exactly. We position ourselves in relation to like what it is that like the, what it is that language and narrative are doing here. Um, but I think that that's sort exactly, of, um, you know, that kind of the, the problem is, that they're faced with is like, okay, so you have these people who don't get that, like, the way that you say something actually matters. And as long as you keep talking mm-hmm. about Manifest Destiny, you're also, like, you know, importing a set 
of um, assumptions and ideologies that are in no way innocent and in fact are destructive. And it's not just that they like reveal something about your project. Um, They also like, um, you know, they, they set boundaries on what it's possible for you to imagine, you know, if manifest is the story that you have to tell, but then beyond that, like, well, that is sort of what language does anyway you know like that's the what analogy does that's what saying like this you know like uh that's what metaphor does right um Mm -hmm. you know and what do you do with that problem of limitation i mean i feel this is something this moment on 307 in this very like is this very condensed moment that makes me think of um for people who have read um aurora uh there are these great passages in there um, when the narrator is trying to figure out how it's possible to use language and what language can do to tell a story um, that is not a sort of like, uh, that doesn't focus on the individual, right? That That is uh-huh. kind of like a group. Um, and this is kind of like, I feel like this is a sort of like preview of what happens in that later novel, um, which I, I just think is like, um, whatever. I think that that's like this really great and beautiful um, and difficult kind of thought to have that, you know, like mm. the problem is not just people who are like, you know, ignorant enough or blinded enough that they think that they can like, um, I don't know, think about manifest destiny and have that be okay. The problem is also mm-hmm. this like inherent tendency of language itself. And then in the face of that, like, what can you do except to try to put yourself in the kind of space that, you know, that frustrates, uh, the, the, you know refuses uh refuses words altogether right like in this case right surfing <laughs> right yeah um yeah and i and and i and i think that like the analogy or not analogy but just mm-hmm. the way that this works too is that um you know has a as the title says this surfing itself is an argument for the deployment of all safe terraforming Mm -hmm. technologies. Like how are you going to, you know, this is a beautifully written account of, I assume what it's like to go surfing. I've never gone surfing. I'm from California. I'm scared of the ocean. It's too big. I'm not going to go surfing, (laughs) but, um, it's a beautiful account of surfing. They're body surfing. Huh? They're body. I would do, I would do surfing if it had, uh, 100% safety, uh, <laughs> just the same way that like the wingsuits have 100% safety, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, the argument for the deployment of all safe terraforming technologies and, and by analogy, as imperfect as it is, the argument for the deployment of all safe technology that would stop or reverse climate change, even if it involved, so in, in the case of Mars, it involves blowing up uh, a million thermonuclear explosions in the deep regolith. And in the case of Earth, it might involve building nuclear reactors to get off of fossil fuels, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever it would be, whatever it would include, um, the argument in favor of it is being able to go surfing and like have this amazing uh, experience and develop cool new wetsuits that would let you, that would like lock in place. So you would like not even need a surfboard that you would have these 
insane wetsuits these days are much like bird suits in that they stiffen in reaction to the stress on them and the knees will lock together, allowing Arishka to hydroplane over the water's surface, touching it only with her hands, lower legs, and fins. Then we get these amazing scenes of these, you know, uh, uh, just, just, you know, the experience of what it's like to do it, which is beautifully uh, rendered in words. Yes. But yeah. again, it, it is just words. It's not the actual experience of actually doing it, which must be so much more fun than, than just reading about it. Right. Well, and that, I think that the, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, I, oh my God. I just had like so many thoughts at once that my brain just shut, shut down. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know oh. what? I'm sorry. I, 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 I was, man, you, I'm, you've destroyed me. Uh. <laughs> Now you know how I feel most of the time <laughs> talking to you, Hillary. Uh, but, oh, so here's one thing I was thinking. So, you know, what, what's the, like, I mean, there are all kinds of things to think about, like, uh, why, why body surfing shows up all over the place in Kim Stanley Robinson novels. But, um, uh -huh. but one of them is, is a different version of, like, what's the argument here? And that is... So it may be that part of the problem with thinking about terraforming Mars, just like part of the problem with trying to think about what do we do about, um, you know, global climate crisis, is that there's something that those are, that some of the difficulty of those problems can't get worked out in the mode of like um, rational discussion. Like some of it has right. to be worked out in that mode. Um, mm -hmm. But some of it is about, you know, I mean, in here, I think I'm really just thinking about like, you know, climate change and like, what do we do and why do we think that we can't do anything? I mean, if we think that we can't do anything, you know, uh, that's not just because it's huge. It's also because we find ourselves mired in a kind of like despair in relation to this. And some of that, I wonder right. if that's not about also about that, like, you know, we feel alienated from it and we feel alienated in many ways um, from like the earth itself. Right. Like mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and that alienation um, is partly because uh, our labor is alienated from us that like our most basic mm -hmm. connection, you know, to make it mm -hmm. and to, to, um, you know, to the natural world. But, but part of that is also because like we, uh, you know, we, we tend to think that like where these problems are, are negotiated is in words. Um, and there is some sense here of like, um, uh, the experience of the body that can't be rendered in words is, a, is yes. a place where we actually like that sort of, so, you know, the, the title pull inside of us, like, you know, maybe we know that that's there, but we feel that in when we're immersed in the ocean, right. Or, you know, mm -hmm. when the blood is rushing through you or whatever it is. I mean, and that's part of what the sort of like the surfing here is, is like, but this is also a kind of non-word based, knowledge um yeah um and it and and like the sort of um you know i don't know that there's something in that the experience of that kind of connection that can't be put into words um and yet as you pointed out is being put rendered really beautifully in words here you know and the yeah the narrator um who you know 
perhaps is Stan um, on 311 describes this as like a um, this temporal change, right? And I, I think that this right. seems really important in this sequence of this book because, you know, um, we've been thinking a lot about different kinds of temporality, not only history, Martian history, Mars trilogy history, alternate history, um, but what happens when like you don't go or what happens when you're like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, frozen in place standing on your beach because you think that like your life won't begin until the woman that you love shows up or, but here mm-hmm. we get the temporality of like, um, you know, riding a wave in which like, which is not, uh, can't be translated into other kinds of, uh, other forms of right. time. Right. And he's, the narrator says, However, one experiences these knots in time. Afterwards, one can scarcely remember the details of what has been a day of perpetual activity on the part of both you and the world. I mean, like, so beautiful. I wonder if, like, the knots in time, that made me think of um, Wordsworth's spots in time, spots of time, like, the idea Mm. of, like, Mm. a particular moment. I think this is, like, an anti-Wordsworthian idea here, but for Wordsworth, it's like, there's this particular moment when you kind of gain this, like, you know, large scale reflective capacity. Um, So Uh like when reflecting on this particular moment from your past, it gives you this sort of like um, this like big picture view of things. You like have an understanding and here the knot in time seems to be like the place where like, you know, the understanding, uh, uh, you're not even reaching at understanding. You're just like having like an experience and that experience is of both your experience and the world's experience. Anyway, it's cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. 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 Just a moment of pure experience. Yeah. And, and a, well, the best, you know, I, uh, there's two, I remember when I was first learning Frankfurt school theory, there's like two words for experience that they use. And one of them is like, you know, the, the kind of experience that modernity produces the experience for consumption. Mm. And then the other type of experience is like more like an experience like this, like a genuine, you know, a more authentic for lack of a better word experience. Like I'm sure I'm botching this. Right. But that what's really at crisis in modernity is experience. And the fact that experience itself is create, it, it is, you know, up for commodification mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, is a subject of commodification. Um, and, you know, the, the cinema does this and tourism does this and um, uh, you know, anything that's commodified does this. And it seems to be the case, you know, one argument that I think we find throughout the Mars books um, is that things that get decommodified, once you decommodify vast areas of your life, new experiences that are more genuine that are not subject to the market or subject to comp- like competition in the same way that the market puts us into competition with each other um, and that are not subject to capital um, n- new types of experiences will emerge or reemerge right um, in that way we get you know the the feral the groups of feral people mm-hmm, running mm-hmm. around mars and we get the 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 cave surfers or whatever when we were in dorsa brevia yeah, right yeah. that um william <laughs> fort joined and we get new and and we even get a new form of baseball uh-huh, right? right um right. 
itself a competitive sport, but one that is played with a new, a renewed sense of, of kind of wonder and joy because, um, because of where it's being played and the conditions under which it's being played. I mean, and I think we, you know, we also have to say here that of course, like this is not uh, like in any simple way about like getting in touch with nature, you know, quote right. unquote, because, you know, where are they surfing? Well, they're surfing on Mars, right? I mean, like, yeah, yeah. you know, like the, these incredible waves um, are not only, uh, not only made, uh, you know, there because of like uh, the work of human beings, but also the beach they go to has just recently been changed. So like the place where the waves break is not where it was before yeah. right you know so right i mean and, and that i think is you know that's just like that's the kind of brilliant move well whatever there are multiple mm -hmm. brilliant moves here but that's one of the brilliant moves right is that like you know mm -hmm. you're having to think about something that like your first response to it is like well this is about like getting away from like enculturation or something the world of words right the world of law and words and, and instead, like, immersing yourself in the natural. But the natural here is not natural right. in that sense at all. Right. And yet it's also deeply yeah. tied to the kind of, like, living, organic bio-creatures that we are. Yeah. Well, there's, like, various types of escape hatches that you can, like, trick yourself into forgetting that you're conscious human for a, a moment right um like meditation for instance for example sure. just like various kind of tricks or like vacuuming <laughs> or um just planting some tulips or something yeah. like that like you know not you know getting a being able to escape in one way or another um yeah weeding anyway. weeding i mean speaking of weeding i think yeah. weeding is really good for that so like, I think it was last time I talked about, I had a baseball bat that I was hitting little apples across the backyard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I got a pitching wedge from the local, um, whatever thrift store. Mm -hmm. And now I've, um, golfing them across the, <laughs> the, the yard. It's better because I don't spray apple juice all over myself as much. And I can I can really swing it pretty hard and it's not gonna go over the fence to my neighbor's yard because it's just a pitching wedge. Uh, so it's pretty fun. That's great, that's great. I think this is a yeah, positive development yeah. in your new uh, lifestyle. Yeah, it's, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Uh, creating new lifestyles all the time. Um, we've got, Next, selected abstracts from the Journal of Areological Studies. Uh, what did you make of this? So, I mean, this is great. I I went down like kind of a um, a rabbit hole of half-assed research. <laughs> uh -huh. As as they say, you know, haven't you heard that phrase before? Mm -hmm. uh, just like trying to like track like what were references to things that are um, you know. Uh, real things and what are made up things, um, which uh -huh. was kind of awesome and fascinating. You know, once I figured out that the um, the meteorite ALH uh, eight four zero zero one was a real meteorite, then I felt like um, okay. I was really um, yeah. So I was doing some reading back and forth, and I can't recapitulate any of that right yeah. now because uh, not, okay. you know because it was half assed. Um, but what what I liked about this was, you know, not only the thing that you already said, which was the kind of um, 
you know, the traveling of the Archaea here, but also, mm-hmm. you know, going back to hiking fossil Canyon when they think they've found like the fossil trace, right? Right. Of life, but in fact, they haven't. But here we're getting to like, oh, but actually, if you look in the right place, there is life or there was life, right? Um, right. And just the, the idea of like um, the archaea, the nanobacteria, nanobacteria like structures. So it seems like in for a while, um, uh, scientists found these things that they described as nanobacteria and they thought that they were life forms. And it seems like now they don't think that they're life forms, but they're like something else um, that, uh, mm-hmm. so, so there's just like a lot of like um, kind of slippery play here, as well as just the idea of like the writing back and forth in the journal. And then right at the end, yes. we see that like, um, it's not just, we're reading these <laughs> excerpts because somebody has been doing a keywords, a failed keyword. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, that it's yeah, there's a mystery kind of here and it's refreshing to read the first of all, I was a little bit jealous as a as a humanities scholar of science because humanities papers are just all over the place. There's no like big projects anymore, you know, no one's writing, you know, it's all about argumentation and and not like you know the, the the kind of evidence that's deployed in in the humanities although you know the form it takes is the same the types of evidence and the way that it's mobilized and the kind of tightness of the conversation that we see here at least in my experience maybe i'm studying the wrong stuff doesn't happen in the humanities it's all way more fractured and and stuff like that um so i was jealous on that in that regard but then like to just think about like the task of writing whatever it is 20 abstracts <laughs> of sci- like of science journals is sort of mind-boggling um and uh and, but all, and we, we also in different voice i mean these actually do take somewhat different voices right like there's a dialogue between the kind of camp of uh, Forbes and Teneve who i think is Vlad right Vlad Teneve oh is that is that his last name I think so. I thought it was. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, and Boraz Johnny, who's the the skeptic, um, with one uh, article by Sachs mm-hmm. thrown in, which is just a typically terse <laughs> two line um, two line abstract. Anyway, it's a kind of um, marvelous, and also the years are all consistent. You know, it goes by year: M sixty two, M sixty three, M sixty four. M65, 65 again, just the next day, mm-hmm. then 65, then 69, and then, uh, and that was volume 64. And then the next 10 volumes, there's no mention of Nothing. this at all. So there's some, and and as you were saying before, this is about indigeneity, right? Like this is indigenous origin is the only good explanation of all the data, and suddenly they stop talking about it. It's almost like a conspiracy happened mm-hmm. or something that like they don't they don't want this to get out because the fact of the matter is there was life on Mars before there was life on Earth. Um, I don't know. It, 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 it opens up to a whole range of kind of like conspiracy theory readings of like, you know, um, this this. Uh, 
this uh, strain of research being um, mysteriously abandoned mm -hmm. after this enormous discovery. Well, it seems like if we take, I mean, I, I like your point about the, the, this is a sort of representation of like what goes on in scientific journals that has like a sort of, um, a level of, uh, you know, let's just say urgency and engagement that like mm -hmm. we don't think of as happening. And I would agree does not happen in the academic communities. Um, yeah. uh, although at the same time, you know, like part of what, you know, it's not only like you're reading this, like beautifully constructed little um little story piece um but also like part of what gives it like it's kind of um alluring quality is that i i think that we've already met the arcane <laughs> we've already met the arcane right. you know what i mean um yeah. that, like they we met them first as like um actors in a in a tale of some kind that was was like a little you know felt like is this allegory but then in the end doesn't quite seem to be like you can't exactly like deploy it as allegory so i guess that's a case for the humanities too right that's true no i mean i'm not obviously i'm not saying we should abolish the humanities i'm just there are days there are um, days my friend when i think we should i just would like uh a more focused discussion, I think, rather than like everyone talking, having their own little conversation um, by themselves, well, off by themselves. Yeah, I mean, we're not talking past. We're each not going to get that until we like deinstitutionalize the university and like make mm -hmm. academic writing and publishing not, a, you know, not a essentially like a arena of commodity production. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell yeah, me about tell it. Me about Alienation. <laughs> alienation. Um, and then finally, so uh, yeah, that's ba that's basically it for the Martian or the um, the journal, I mean, right? I think that, that's yeah, cool. I, I mean, there's probably more to say, but like you know, we've already talked for an extremely long time this episode. I think we have one more. We have Odessa, which is just this real short fragment, which I assume is kind of a Maya thing is it a maya would you say it's a maya or a michelle or is it either of them or neither or I, both or i know i thought about that too um you know it it does seem to be invoking them and the way that they lived together and i think my reading is maya not michelle mm -hmm. um but it also could be somebody else too, right? I mean, like, surely they're not mm -hmm. the only, like, um, they're not the only pair of people who found their way to, you know, this little interlude in living um, on Mars, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think so. I mean, I think that's completely um, plausible. I have kind of a theory that I'm going to withhold about this until a later date, but I, but, um, it does feel like it could be any number of, you know, thousands of people who move to Odessa and have a kind of, or move to a place and have an experience mm -hmm. and just sort of, you know, it's another one of those cases that we find again and again in the books where it describes a routine, an iterative, not a not a singular episode or singular event, but a thing that happens habitually over a long period of time, um, where a routine develops 
almost or evolves or almost uh, a kind of riverbed erodes and you have this kind of um uh punctuated equilibrium like we saw in the previous in um in the argument for the deployment right um that things are always changing but always is uh, always relative and that life exists as a series of punctuated e equilibriums um and this is this is just a a, a really lovely example of, of one of them right and, yeah i mean it's like it's an interlude and it's like the as a chapter mm -hmm. in this book it also works as an interlude because it's so short um mm -hmm. but it's also that idea like it's another thing like um you know uh, the experience of, of surfing produces this knot of time, this different kind of temporality, you know, in your experience yeah. of n navigating the wave or Nergal thinking um, my childhood, my memories of my childhood are like a fairy tale. How is that attached to the rest of my life now? Or even, or even like Jackie, Jackie thinking when she looks at the adult Zoe, I know what you really are. You're that little animal who I remember and love. Right. And, and right. you know, the, right. the, this interlude is also a kind of an interlude, right? Like yeah, a reminiscence about something that doesn't seem to like give itself over to meaning or to story. Um, that has a kind of reverie quality to it. Um, but is also mm -hmm. like quite as I think, as you were saying, like ordinary making the coffee, looking at the clouds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. It's very pretty. It's a very pretty section. <laughs> I mean, it's very like it's moving and it's like prettiness and in the sense of something about to be lost, you know, or that has been lost. That's right? true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in those days, we were so happy. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, time goes on. Well, I can't, well, time flies. A, I can't believe you have a theory that you haven't said what it is. Well, it's developing. I don't want to make a fool out of myself. Well, yeah. I'm going to withhold. I'm withholding I it. I know you're withholding. I'm going to, I know I'm withholding. And <laughs> you know, it's, it's to make sure that the listeners come back next week. Oh, oh my. It's a cliffhanger. It's, it's a, a cliffhanger. cliffhanger. You know, we should really cry for that um, every week. A cliffhanger. <laughs> that would be a, a novel uh, idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it would require uh, more planning than we usually do. It would require a lot more planning. Oh, um, I yeah. God, what what? Anyway, I can't plan anything anymore. Anyway, um, so next time, what do we want to? read so i would I, say oh, go ahead yeah go ahead well no what's your i would say sexual dimorphism enough is as good as a feast and what matters that sounds great yeah that is what i okay. was thinking also yeah all right the next the plan is the next three sections 22 23 and 24 and hopefully we'll get to do that next week yeah and um until then do we have any announcements? Anything to plug, Hillary? Uh, well, I I mean, we could sort of foreshadow that we are beginning work on a second podcast. <laughs> it, <laughs> indeed, we are. Why not? Why not? It's a spinoff. This a spin -off. is the direction that the humanities are going anyway. It's, it's and once Bernie Sanders... 
once Bernie Sanders is president, there's going to be a whole department of podcast humanities um, <laughs> that exactly. is going to fund. It's going to replace the Department of Education. It's going to fund <laughs> podcasts just like this. It's just going to be a bunch apply of for white people, mostly men, talking into microphones. <laughs> oh, I mean. That's really sad that that's all that podcasts are. Except for you, Hillary. You're the bright spot I know, in the bright, I was all white male world of podcasts. I'm a shining star. I think our podcast, yeah. this one, is really great. Um, and we are starting working on another one that's just going to be like a limited one in which we talk about um, Alien and the Alien movies. The Alien movie film franchise, including Alien, Aliens, Alien 3, Alien Resurrection? Alien Resurrection, exclamation point. And that, is that, no, it doesn't have an exclamation no. point, does it? <laughs> uh, and then what, to be determined if it's aliens and predators or alien versus predator or whatever? Is that, can, is that, versus, yeah, we got to do alien versus predator. Um, it is canon. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that'll be, that'll be done with, uh, that'll, we're starting work on that and we're going to release all of them all at once is the yeah, plan. I think that's the plan. And we, yeah. We're 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 working in collaboration with our good friend and colleague Bill Hutchison, uh, also from the University of Chicago, and um, look out for that in probably what January or something. Yeah, I guess maybe. My, yeah, that's what I would guess. Um, it'll be more. It'll be the goal is to be more thought through than this one, <laughs> which is not to say. Which is not to say we take this podcast lightly, but that the alien one we are hoping to have, you know, real arguments and planning ahead of time, um, uh, rather than the kind of spontaneous um, words that just fall out of our mouths when we open them kind of thing that happens. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think our idea is that those would be like a little bit more produced and will be less about, you know, I think of this as about like, we're trying to think together about things that we find um, important and moving and significant and like hoping that that's like our thinking together about it is letting other people also think together about it, you know. Um, and I don't know, the alien stuff, I don't know what exactly it's going to be like, but I think it's going to be cool. It's well, it's definitely gonna be cool. Just in what way is it going to be cool? That's the only question. Well, that I guess that remains to be seen. Uh, that, so I'm that sure is that what everybody is fascinated and excited for our new podcast, which is about. <laughs> I think we've done a great job of promoting it, and it's going to be huge. Uh, but don't be afraid, because we're going to continue with this podcast. Uh, you know, until we run out of books. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um. Until then, you can, you know, follow us on Twitter at Podcast on Mars, and you can email us at maroonedonmarspodcast at gmail.com. You can leave us voicemails on the Anchor app, and you can also, through Anchor, donate to the show. And you can, what else can they do? That's all they can do. Well, they can rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, you can certainly I mean, rate, rate and app, review us on iTunes. On iTunes, yeah, exactly. I mean, or Apple Podcasts or whatever, whatever it is, it is. they call it. Yeah. If you can rate and review us anywhere you're getting this podcast, I, I, we would appreciate it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm spent. Yeah. I need yeah. a, I need a beer. Uh, I need another cup of tea. And you know what I'm going to do now, Matt? 
Medi- meditate. Well, before I meditate, I'm going to bring in, start bringing my house plants that have been vacationing outside all summer inside because yeah. it's getting cool here, and that is going to include bringing your house plants into the house. Oh well, good okay. luck with that. They can really be a handful. They're all doing really, really well. They all look gorgeous. Um, Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, we exactly. I. I planted some tulip bulbs in um, some pots last a few days ago, and they're outside. Uh-huh. And um, probably tomorrow I'll plant some more tulip bulbs in the actual ground. And I still have a bunch of turnips growing outside that what? I there. It's mostly the leaves, like the greens. I don't think they actually that I got any actual turnips out of this. I just got a shitload of turnip greens because i think i planted the seeds too closely and the turnips don't have enough room to develop but um i'm going to harvest some of these greens and then like we'll see what happens with the turnips because i heard they're hardy yeah turnips are cold hardy and they like growing in cold weather too yeah so we'll see maybe i will eventually get some turnips in a few weeks yeah yeah dude that's awesome so that's the uh that's the agricultural update yeah and um (laughs) Uh, until next time until next time thank you for listening thank you for listening goodbye bye